As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi there. Hi, Tim. Good to be here. Good. So today we wanted to kind of resume a conversation we had on a series of episodes uh, a few months ago now entitled Old People, which we um, kind of dived into the concept of the the demographic time bomb and increased life expectancy um, and the ever dwindling proportion of economically active people in society compared to the retired and the elderly. Um, uh, Do you want to just kind of summarize some some of our kind of big picture stuff from that episode and and where we're going to move the conversation on today? Yeah, I I mean, this is something that uh, is very close to home to me at the moment because I have just been celebrating my 70th birthday. I've had my three score years and 10. And so from now on, I'm sort of thinking that every day is a bonus, but I'm I'm living on borrowed time and who knows what the future will will hold. Um, But I've also been trying to write uh, on, on this topic about how we approach aging and looking forward to the final stages of the race we're on and it is a, a remarkable phenomenon that's that's going on around us isn't it and and in a sense it's so much it's just so commonplace that we don't really notice how extraordinary it is of course there always used to be this small numbers of extremely elderly people um but really for the first time in the history of humankind we have this massive shift towards large numbers of elderly people um, many of whom who are healthy thanks to um, advances in healthcare and, and so on but of course we all know that there are increasing anxieties about what the implications are going to be for society and in fact it seems almost like it's an insoluble problem Mm. Um, as the numbers of elderly people increase the birth rate goes down um, how on earth as a society are we going to afford uh, all the the costs of, of large numbers of economically inactive people many of whom who will be dependent on carers Mm. the whole kind of modern liberal democratic welfare state was kind of predicated in the idea that you had this mass of people working and paying taxation and then the government would redistribute a small proportion of that to look after those 
uh, both kind of under 18 and over 65. Um, and that worked for quite a while because those numbers were, were small in comparison to those who were working. You know, I think I once read that the reason the retirement age was set at 65, the very first um, country to invent the, the kind of universal state pension was Prussia. And they worked out that they could only afford to pay um, people an average, I think, two or three years of pension. So they found out life actually was 67. So they set the retirement age 65 because that's all they could afford, the two years that people would live. Um, and we got stuck with that. But of course, life expectancy is now reaching into the 90s uh, in, in, in industrialised developed nations like the UK. And the numbers are quite striking. I mean, I was looking at some figures earlier. In the UK, there is um, currently more than 12 million people aged 65 years and over, which is I think approaching a fifth of the population, but that's going to rise to about 19 million by the middle of the century. Um, and within that group, those over 85 um, are already 1.6 million. Again, that's going to double by the end of the decade. So this is, as you say, it's kind of an unprecedented, thanks to the kind of advances in um, medicine and, and nutrition, people are living longer than they ever have before, which is wonderful in one level, but it also creates unique challenges about how as a society we manage that it does and of course the, it's a very toxic mix because not only is this there is this massive increase in life expectancy but of course it's also happening at a time of breakdown of traditional social structures and um, again the statistics about how many elderly people are effectively living alone in single households and are uh, have very little social support um, Again, very different from previous generations, and um, <clears throat> and even when there are, you know, the next generation is very uh, prepared to be there and support their elderly relatives. The reality is that often, you know, you have people who are working full time who have lots of commitments of their own, and they're simply just not capable. Uh, they don't they don't have the resources to be able just to drop everything and to be there to care for their elderly parents mm. it's certainly the case isn't it i think between kind of the more educated uh the kind of higher up the class structure you go the more likely people are to move around for work as well and so i think i certainly see it i think in in my kind of peer group that it's very common to live hundreds of miles away from where you grew up maybe you move somewhere for university and settled and got a job or you move to the big city and and the kind of old presumption that the family extended family unit was within a short distance of each other is just no longer the case you know you might be you, your parents might be you know hundreds hundreds of miles but even in a relatively compact country like the UK um, and just completely inaccessible to be realistically kind of looking after them as they physically decline that's right and then you've got the sort of breakdowns of you know traditional families and marriage breakdowns and um, mm. <clears throat> complex family dynamics um, I was struck by a, a survey that found um, of people in the UK over 75 one in six said they felt socially isolated and when you got to those over 85 the figure rose to seven out of ten mm. um, which again it is one just senses that in our society uh, there are actually large numbers of elderly people who are just living lives of isolation and, and, and maybe quiet despair. There's a really tragic stat that I can't remember, but it gets cited in sermons all the time about the percentage of, of retired people who say that the TV is their best friend, 
which I think is such an indictment on <laughs> on all of us really that we've allowed a situation to to kind of get in, entrenched where there is it is kind of tolerated that when once someone is you know housebound and things like that we just kind of let them stew um that's right so what's interesting to me is that the 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 policy response to all this uh, is primarily to try to emphasize and encourage um the concept of active aging um <clears throat> interestingly the phrase used to be healthy aging and then because the realization was that so many people had chronic health problems this was unrealistic but now it's called active aging and and active aging is this idea of maximizing and maintaining independence autonomy and control for as long as possible into late old age and um you know it's that it's that kind of image of the the tanned um fit cycling uh, elderly person with grey hair, you know, <laughs> the Saga cruise stereotype, you know, <laughs> enjoying fine wines as you pedal around uh, somewhere in in continental Europe or something, doing on a on a on a on a tour with your other half. It's yeah, it's a nice what... idea, but it doesn't really seem to chime with the experiences of most people in their eighties and nineties that I come across. But I I think you can see, can't you, that in a in a society that just prizes. Um, autonomy that says you know the meaning of life is all about making your own choices and and living out your dreams Um, Mm. this this vision of aging makes a lot of sense yeah it's it's the logical end point of a of a um a kind of societal myth which starts really i think in childhood you know you look at the, the kind of the moral of the story of most disney films is is all about um finding your true self self-actualizing your your kind of sense of fulfillment um being being completely unencumbered by other people or, or even societal expectations there's a sense of that is that is where true meaning lies and so the idea of you know what used to be taught to people talk about you know a kind of the life is a cycle and you're born fully dependent on other people and you grow into independence and then you return to dependence and you kind of complete the cycle. And I think there's a real sense at the present that people reject that idea or they strain to get the kick against it and they want to push on and say, no, 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 there's no reason why this third chapter of life from kind of your 70s onwards should be a return to dependence because that is the kind of undermining of everything that I've lived for for the previous 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um... Of course, there's there's then a dark side towards this because what we already see in places who, that have legalised assisted suicide um, or different forms of medical killing, euthanasia and so on, is <clears throat> that loss of autonomy and fear of becoming a burden, quotes, is actually commonly cited as a reason for people going deciding to... Uh, to kill themselves or or to, or to request to be killed by a doctor. Hmm. I remember there was um a famous a famous case uh you might you might I think you told me about this a while ago about um about 10 years ago in the UK a very respected philosopher and ethicist Mary Warnock who we actually discussed a few podcasts ago in talking about um embryology research um she wrote it wrote an article saying that um there was almost a duty to die if someone was, had kind of severe dementia and was 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 a burden on their family on society they had a duty to die which 
caused enormous kind of outrage, appropriately so in my view, but it's clearly a sense that which is prevalent among maybe some kind of more higher higher elite kind of circles uh, that that yeah. really that the decent thing to do or, or the logical end point of a life lived pushing into autonomy and ind- independence is when you can see that slipping away is to make your final act of autonomy and independence by killing yourself. Yeah, I mean, what I'm really struck about is that is that when you are in sort of doctors' common rooms or you know, in the university, in the senior common room, and, and, and we're having this kind of discussion, it's very common for people to say, actually, I'm pretty convinced that this is the only long-term solution. And certainly if it was me, I would want uh, to kill myself, and I think that this is the way forward for society. But they don't say these things in public, by and large, uh, because they know it's so socially unacceptable. But Mary Warnock, I've just looked up... Um, some of the things she said. So when she was challenged about would legalising um, assisted suicide, assisted dying, would that put pressure on elderly people? She said this, to ask for death for the sake of one's children or other close relatives can be seen as an admirable thing to do, not in the least indicative of undue pr- pressure. Other kinds of altruism are generally thought worthy of praise. Why should one not admire this final altruistic act? Part of what makes a patient's suffering intolerable may be the sense that he or she is ruining other people's lives. If they feel this keenly and ask to be allowed to die, they're not a vulnerable victim, they're a rational, moral agent. (laughs) (laughs) But you can see the logic, can't you? You can see the logic. I mean, why not? Um, Aren't you sparing your children Hmm. by doing the decent thing by... Aren't you, you know, sparing society? Think of all the healthcare costs you're saving. Uh, think of the resources that are not going to be spent on your care. Um, is this altruism? No. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> why not? Well, I think what because 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 it presupposes, underlying it presupposes that being a burden on someone is intrinsically a bad thing. That that the line behind her comment is that well of course the idea that other people have to care for me because I cannot care for myself is intrinsically imposing harm and suffering upon them and that I think is something that I and I think Christians should just reject because it's just completely out of step with with a kind of traditional biblical understanding of what it means to live in community you know that it's obvious to us when we think about children. You know, children are a burden on their parents. I speak from some experience. You know this too. <laughs> children are a burden on their parents. Yes, Tim, yes, um, they are a burden. They are a burden. Sometimes that continues even into adulthood. Um, but but no one says that that's a bad thing. <laughs> no, because we understand that that is part of the point, <laughs> is that we uh, live in, in the middle of the night. when <laughs> <laughs> It might have you some, have you know, negative externalities <laughs> from time to time. But in, in the round, nobody argues that, that it, the children have, have um, you know, have been unfair on their parents by being a burden on them. And I think if we can accept that for children, why can't we follow the line of reasoning and say that's also true when we, when we reach the end of our lives? Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here because, uh, you know, fundamentally, as you know, I agree with you. But I can see people who argue, well, that's all very fine for children because the whole point about children is that they are still at a stage where they have not yet developed independence. They're, they are on the on the process of growing. And, of course, we as parents are here to care and love and support our children and society as a whole does that. But the idea is you're setting them free so that they become independent, so that they then live their lives and all that. And isn't that rather different? That That's why they're not the same thing. It, it, it isn't a second childhood. This mm-hmm. is not becoming a child again. This This is a grown adult who has experienced independence and who is now facing what they may think of as a horror. Uh, they don't want to become a child again. They'd much rather die with dignity. Mm. And I think that argument has force, you know, and I can, you know, I can sympathise that, you know, a child finds it much easier to, you know, wet themselves because they don't know any different. But when you've lived for 60, 70, 80 years, able to control your bowel movements and go to the toilet when you please, it must be deeply distressing to realise that actually you're now having to wet yourself or wear an adult diaper and that kind of thing. Like, to use it as, as a, a kind of crude example, like, I, I can yeah, I can understand that. I haven't got experience of that, but I can I can imagine that that is a, a really challenging experience and not something that someone looks forward to at all. I, I guess I come back to the idea of what is the 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 purpose, you know, to use a Ponzi kind of Greek word, the telos of of human existence. Mm, and what you yeah. said there, it, it, again, it presupposes that the purpose of human beings is to grow into independence. And so we tolerate the first childhood because it is a preparatory stage and it is a developing and you are releasing the child to grow up and no longer need you. And therefore that's why regressing is, is a backwards, it's a reversal, it's a stepping away from the ultimate kind of purpose of, of being a person. But I think that's not actually what our human purpose is because if you look that we're you know if 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 the supreme humanity was demonstrated by jesus he did not exhibit full and total autonomy and independence despite being god um he he lived uh, dependent on other people and ultimately you know died i just think it, it it's it's a kind of enlightenment slash kind of Platonic Greek philosophical idea of like the true, truest, our true humanity is found in full independence. And if that was the case, then it might make sense to kill yourself as an elderly person. But I don't believe as Christians we can accept that's that's our that's our true telos. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think it is interesting, isn't it? Because it does focus <clears throat> attention on Jesus. Mm. Because what is striking is how different Jesus is from all the other heroes of the ancient age mm-hmm. you know the <clears throat> you think of the, the this image of um, of the hero is is often somebody who approaches death with great sort of um, courage with uh, almost anticipation who sacrifices themselves um <clears throat> and who doesn't outstay their welcome you know who falls on their sword or you know uh, and and it's often been pointed out that the, the contrast with with Jesus who seems 
a very you know who approaches death he weeps he 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 struggles in the garden of gethsemane he asks if it's possible take this cup from me um you know and and this image of the crucified christ is, is not at all that of of the um the hero approaching death mm. he asks um, his disciples to pray for him he leans on others even others weaker than himself he 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 leans into his vulnerability even though obviously at any point you know he could call down countless hordes of angels to to spare him or whatever he he embraces the frailty and the dependent the intrinsic dependence kind of baked into human flesh fleshliness um, rather than resisting it absolutely right so in the ancient world this was an extremely uh, shocking <clears throat> and unexpected um affirmation you know of course crucifixion was the most humiliating the most terrible the most shameful deaths and mm. and it's it's fascinating isn't it the way that the christians took the early christians took this and, and put it on its head and it becomes the sign of our faith um this very humiliation um is, is something that that we celebrate um and it it's often been said, hasn't it? But it does seem to me that in the modern world, it, it's yes, it's partly the Enlightenment, but it's also partly going back to this pre-Christian mm. uh, pagan understanding of what life is all about, mm. and and in particular what it means to die well as a pagan, mm. and and that's rather different from this uh, this Christian vision. It reminds me of something I heard. Um, people might be familiar with the historian Tom Holland, who who wrote a book recently all about the kind of the echoes of of Christendom and, and the Christian ethic in, in that are inescapable in kind of Western culture. So much so that we don't even realise they're there. But he was making the point on another podcast I was listening to about how before Christianity, there wasn't really any sense in the Western world. None of the none of the pre-Christian cultures had any idea that there was virtue in suffering. And and it was it was about you know better to die in battle gloriously or you know vanquish your enemies. But this idea that there was virtue in suffering was a is it almost uniquely Christian idea. Um, and it was struck that the 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 other thing that the argument that I don't want to be a burden to others misses is that actually caring for someone who cannot care for themselves is not solely a burden or suffering, though it does involve suffering. Um, but it also it it produces virtue, it produces good fruit. It, it tra it's transformative to the carer as well as to the one being cared for, you know. And, yeah. and again, I'm not here to try and um, pretend that it's easy to look after a, a you know a, an elderly person with dementia who can no longer control their bowel movements. Of course not. Like that's that's a difficult process, and it involves cost and sacrifice. But it's not simply burdensome. It is also actually um, transformative. And when approached. I think in 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 the right spirit, it can as as parents find with children, you know, it it is um it shapes you in positive ways, um and and that is like a profoundly Christian idea that in in service to others we actually can be can be lifted up and can find our true again our, our truest sense of what it means to be human. No, I think that's absolutely true, and certainly <clears throat> when I've been talking to other people's experience of of caring for elderly relatives at the end of their life and as they died many people have said to me how precious those times were um 
you know, married couples have said, you know, <clears throat> just doing very, very simple things, you know, holding hands, cutting the nails, mm. um, just sharing very, very basic caring things. Actually, as I look back, these are these are very, very special and significant. And interestingly, of course, it's not just people who have a Christian faith who see that, uh, because this is deeply rooted into our created nature, isn't it? So, so many people have said to me <clears throat> who don't have a faith that how special and significant some of these experiences were. Um, but I, I do think the challenge that is facing our secular age is <clears throat> whether or not this pagan understanding will increasingly overwhelm our, our created desire to to care for our loved ones to to look after them to even to sacrifice our own lives um, to some extent in caring for our loved ones and I think it will become increasingly difficult for Christians you know if this if the society continues on the road it's going down we will end up with, as you know, there is, is already present in some parts of the world. I, I believe you mentioned off mic. We're talking before about the the state of Oregon in the U.S., where you, it is possible to get a doctor who will prescribe you lethal medication so that you can end your life, not because you're terminally ill, just because you are, you know, the concept of the altruistic kind of suicide that because you're tired of life, you're ready to die or whatever. You know, that's that's a a fringe example but it is clearly i think the direction of travel if that becomes reality i think it's going to be incredibly important for the church to to start teaching you know long before people reach their 70s 80s and 90s what christian dependence is and and the biblical ethic that we've been trying to sketch out about how you know re rejecting the idea that the loss of autonomy is the worst thing that can happen to a person because the pressure from society to just get on board and and line and align yourself with this idea that being a burden is the worst thing ever is going to be immense. I think that's right. And and I think we, actually we're, we have, as Christian people, we're much more infected by these ideas than than we realise. And, and I think, interestingly, I think the previous generation, the, the, the generation that went through the war, uh, developed a very strong ethic of self-reliance, of, of rugged individualism, of, of don't depend on handouts, uh, just survive and cope and look after yourself and this was often given a kind of Christian spin you know that this is I, I don't need other people I'm just depending on the Lord and I'm just mm -hmm. living my own life um, but actually I think it, it was reflecting a, a lot of these enlightenment uh, concepts which had sort of got smuggled in and Christianized so I, I think we do have a major task to kind of rethink um, what it means, how to, how to approach old age, how how do we think of approaching dependence um, in in genuinely thoughtful but realistic Christian ways. Hmm. It strikes me. I was listening to some of the conversation and around well after the Queen died, and the word that came up a lot was her strong sense of duty. And about and she's this kind of epitome of that World War Two generation, the kind of last stand, as it were, uh, in in kind of British public life. And people were saying, incredibly influenced by her Christian faith, was that she was her whole life was marked by this keen in her bone. She felt this sense of duty, 
and you know and that's why she didn't abdicate even as she got iller and older and and that's why she finds some of the younger generations you know your harry and megan slightly difficult to deal with because she's like well you know i was born to this life and i have a duty to serve and, and i'm just going to follow my duty and and plug all the way to the end it doesn't it's not supposed to be fun it's not supposed to be fulfilling it's just my duty but there's, a, there's there's lots to admire there but it strikes me that in her lifetime it was so long and her reign was so long the concept of duty is starting to shift and now people you could you could you can i could really believe that there are people alive today but at the time they reached their 90s like she was the idea of duty would not be plugging on against all the odds the idea of duty is you have a duty to die you have a duty to the rest of us the younger people the taxpayers to not be a, a chronic lingering um, drain on the public purse and on people's affections and caring responsibilities. You have a duty to die. And it's quite scary to imagine the idea that it's not just an option, but it starts to become seen as as a duty. It is. And um, I think that it, I think we do need to talk about this. It's, it's, it's sort of making it... Uh, talk, it's about talking about the unmentionable, isn't it? I mean, it, mm. it's, you know, to use that hoary old simile, it's the elephant in the room, which which people want to avoid because it's too difficult. It's it's simply um, impossible to to see a way out. But I think um, the, the countercultural understanding that uh, whilst encouraging freedom, whilst... Uh, in, there's nothing wrong with independence. Independ- we are called to um, to be free and not to be um, in in the sense that we are to live lives of of, of freedom and, and, and being totally constrained. And yet, um, there is this recognition that dependence is part of the story. And I can't get the quote right, but there's a scripture somewhere about you know. Um, in your service is perfect freedom, you know, and there's this this kind of paradoxical idea that actually true freedom is found not in being entirely encumbered of others, but being knitted into a tight web of a family, you know, the family of God, the family that you're put in, your church family. That is true freedom is not is not living this life of of kind of libertine life of of um, isolation and and total autonomy. But true freedom is found in being um, in service of others as as you are served by them. Yeah, it is a completely paradoxical uh, concept, but it but it makes total sense within that Christian worldview. Mm. Well, we've kind of run out of time uh, for this episode, but we're going to pick this up again next week in a part two. Um, really, I guess, trying to move the conversation on to think about some Christian responses to this social shift that we've been sketching out and, and thinking about what would it look like to transition from kind of adult independence into aged dependence in a way that is kind of authentically christian and and um, rooted in the kind of biblical tradition um so looking forward to that but um thanks very much john as always for your thoughts thanks everyone for listening um there's there's some resources on this you can find on on john's website johnwyatt.com um and please do get in touch with us if you've got any questions feedback disagreements comments we'd love to hear from the listeners uh molad m-o-l-a-d at premiere.org.uk is how you can get in touch with us um, but otherwise uh, look forward to speaking to you next week you've been listening to matters of life and death 
a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.